Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 42. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to be talking about ancient DNA and human origins with researcher and author David Reich. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome, April. How's it going? Well, it's going pretty well. Nice and nice. sunny and warm here in Phoenix. So, outstanding. It's exactly the opposite here in Reno in in mid May. We're getting a pretty severe thunderstorm with uh, lightning, which we don't always get, which is uh, a little crazy. We get pretty severe weather with the Sierras, but not like lightning all the time. So, it's exciting. We'll we'll see if it interrupts our podcast at all. So, okay, um, we might have some some loud rumbling bass in the background. I'll try to amplify that in the editing process, make it sound all dramatic, you know, as we're as we're talking about um, human DNA and ancient human DNA. So, uh, let me get right on to introducing our guest today, uh, and I'm going to read a, a short bio uh, as an introduction to him, and uh, and then we'll get on to the interview. So. All right. Massive technological innovations now allow scientists to extract and analyze ancient DNA as never before. And genomics is emerging as important a means of understanding the human past as archaeology, linguistics, and the written word. In his new book, Who We Are and How We Got There from Pantheon, David Reich describes how the human genome provides not only all the information that a fertilized human egg needs to develop, but also contains within it the history of our species. Join Reich as he discusses how the genomic revolution and ancient DNA are transforming our understanding of our lineage as modern humans and how DNA studies reveal a deep history of inequality among different populations, between the sexes, and among individuals within a population. He examines how research contradicts the orthodoxy that there are no meaningful biological differences among human populations. At the same time, using evidence provided by genomics and ancient DNA to show that the differences that do exist do not conform to familiar and even pernicious stereotypes. Reich, a pioneer in analyzing ancient human DNA, is a professor in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School and an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Welcome to the show, David. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, as I as I read in the introduction to your book, you, you kind of... Uh, uh, sort of wrote this somewhat reluctantly because you really didn't have the time because you're super busy <laughs> from the sounds of uh, this bio that, that that really plays out. Um, why don't you start by expanding on that biography and, and the sort of the description of the book and and give us um, give our audience an understanding, keeping in mind that they're they're probably not scientists and archaeologists um, and uh, give them a little bit more understanding of what this book is really about and what they can learn from it. Well, ancient DNA is um uh, which I've had the privilege to be um, part of this development of ancient DNA over the last uh, decade uh, and eight years especially, um, has really been a really revolutionarily powerful way of uh, studying uh, deep time um, and uh, human po- and human population history. And uh, it's very clear that the findings that we're obtaining from uh, extracting DNA from ancient human um, remains and comparing them to other ancient human remains and to people living today, are, those findings are often in tension with long-established theories and help to resolve questions and mm-hmm. often throw up new findings altogether. So that's very exciting, and it's been very exciting to be part of this development. Um, and And the people who are in these fields that are touched upon by DNA, especially archaeology and also history and uh, people who study historical linguistics uh, and anthropologists are really interested in the findings. And we geneticists have been making statements about that have relevance to other fields. And I think that those communities have not really 
been able to grapple with the science that we're doing because it's very technical um, and it's very hard for people in other fields uh, to understand what we're doing if they don't have the training, which is perfectly understandable. I don't understand a lot of what people do in other fields myself. <laughs> um, so because of that, um, I think there was an increasing uh, choir of people saying to me, and I'm sure to other ancient DNA specialists, we need a book, we need comprehensible ways to interface with the work in this new and obviously important field, and there is nothing uh, that we can use. The journalistic accounts are too simplistic and not accurate. We need something from experts in the field. And so in the end, after a lot of reluctance, I decided to write a book. In, in genetics, books are not the currency. We're not paid to do to write books. We don't get credit, really, for writing books. We write right. papers. And uh, But in the end, I decided to write a book because my colleagues were increasingly becoming archaeologists and <laughs> historians and li- historical linguists, and that is a community I wanted to address. So who was this book written for? What was the audience as you were deciding? Was it your fellow colleagues so they could understand what you're doing, or was it more for you know, for everybody? Um, I think the most important audience for me is scholars, um, archaeologists, especially, and also, as I mentioned, historical linguists and anthropologists and sociologists and people who want to understand uh, in a scholarly way what this uh, science is doing, uh, what what this ancient DNA is doing um, and how, and its implications. And so, so those, that's, that's been my primary audience, but because those, that audience is not, uh, uh, doesn't understand the jargon and um, of of, ge- of genetics. I had to write it in a completely non-jargony way, um, and right. um, I tried to write it to as broad an audience as possible. And there is a broad audience that's interested in the revelations about the past, and I tried to reach that audience as well. Well, I would say I think you did uh, a really fantastic job of um, I don't want to say simplifying a complex topic, but at least making it understandable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I, I mean, I've read about genetics a little bit here and there, but I'm by no means a geneticist. But I was able to understand at least the point that you were trying to get across in, in all the chapters. So I, I appreciate that. And I think other people, if they knew nothing about the topic, would get actually a lot out of the book. At least from they might not understand the technical aspects of how you got to a certain location or a certain idea, but they can understand the idea itself. And, and, and what it's trying to convey. So, you know, good, good job on that. So um, let, let's talk about some of these preconceived notions that you, that you mentioned. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest ones in archaeology and human prehistory has been, uh, well, I mean, before we even sort of kind of landed on out of Africa as a theory for human uh, evolution and migration, you know, there was the multi-regional hypothesis and other different things. Uh, but how has the study of ancient DNA changed what we know about where ancient humans really developed and came from? Well, um, I think that uh, ancient DNA has not really uh, transformed um, in a very profound way um, our understanding of our very deep lineage in Africa. I think that there has been no ancient DNA that's very, very old from Africa um, so far, although that's hopefully going to change in the coming years. Um, And I think that there was a triumphant synthesis of, of genetics, a study of modern people, um, and of archaeology and, and anthropology that in the 80s really showed that the great majority of the ancestry of uh, people outside of Africa today comes from an explosion of humans out of Africa sometime between 10,000 and 50,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the ancient DNA results do not challenge that for the evolution of our own lineage. Um, however, uh, they provide important details about the timing of those events and what happened uh, during the spread of um, modern humans outside of Africa in terms of encounter and mixture with archaic humans, some of which um, was not known to have occurred before before the ancient DNA data became available. Are, are you able to find out some of this from... Uh, I'm curious about the sources, basically, um, that you're using for the DNA studies uh, and, and to come up with these... Co- come up with these conclusions. Are you able to take DNA from, from people around the world and come up with these conclusions? Or do you have to go to Africa, get populations there and do that? I'm sure that would help. But you know, what, what do you use as sources to come up with these um, ideas? So the work, and this is not my work, um, on establishing that modern human variation is 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 our the root of modern human variation is basically Africa. Um, mm-hmm. Involves sampling people, mostly people from Africa itself. Uh, some people who are not very well represented in immigrant groups, such as. Um, uh, Khoisan uh, people from Southern Africa or pygmies from Central Africa uh, or uh, Eastern African hunter-gatherers or pastoralists or Western African farmer or non-farmer populations. 
Um, those populations were sampled in Africa as part of studies of human genomic diversity, and it was study of the genetic relationships amongst those groups, as well as non-Africans, that revealed that the deepest differentiation amongst human populations today was clearly within Africa. Now, some of that variation is represented outside of Africa. In fact, all of it is, but... Um, but very few of some of those groups are represented outside of Africa. And so really to get a rich picture, it's very efficient and powerful to include studies of people from, from, the, from Africa itself. So you keep talking about sampling and looking at the genomes, um, and you do a great job of describing and explaining this in the book. Could you just, for our listeners, kind of break down how, what are you looking at in, what is a genome? To start with, as a very, very simple question for those of us like me who are coming from a very different background, but also what are you looking at? Like, how are you breaking apart these genomes? Um, what kind of portions of them are you trying to look at in order to reconstruct this picture? Yeah, sure. That's a great set of questions. So when you are conceived, you are a fusion of your mother's egg and father's sperm, um, who each contributed one genome copy to you. So you have two genomes in each of your cells, and that that fertilized egg divides and divides and divides. And in almost every cell in your body, you have two genomes, one from your mother and one from your father. And the genome itself consists of a string of uh, chemical letters, um, four letters, adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine, that are strung together. Um, and they spell out many, many messages. They, For example, they spell out 20,000 genes. Uh, genes are sequences of these DNA letters that are translated into proteins, which do most of the work of life. Um, and so that's how most biologists study the genome in order to understand what those genes do and how they spell out the stuff of life and how they go wrong sometimes to cause disease. The great majority of our genomes uh, across humans are extremely similar to each other. So if you take the copy of the genome that you get from your mother and the copy you get from your father, they're 99.9% identical when you line up the DNA letters. But since there are so many letters, about 3 billion of them, there's about one difference every thousand, and that's about 3 million differences. And that's a lot of differences to work with. So those differences between genome sequences and DNA letters are reflect mutations that have occurred on your mother or your father's lineage since at every point in their geno your genome, they descended from a common ancestor. They occur at a pretty random way and accumulate in a pretty clock-like way over time. And so as a result, you can look at any stretch of the genome and compare your mother and father's DNA, count the number of differences, and that gives you an estimate of how long it's been since they send, share a common ancestor. Now that's the key because that means for any pair of people today, you can estimate how long it's been since they share a common ancestor at every point in the genome. On average, that number is about a million years since a pair of people share a common ancestor, but sometimes it's one generation ago, for example, large sections of your genome, you share an ancestor one generation ago with your sibling. And by studying that, how people relate to each other within and across populations, you can reconstruct how closely related populations are to each other. And that's everything we're doing. We're always playing that game of counting mutations between pairs of individuals to learn about history. I'm glad April asked that question. We probably should have led with that. Um, I like to kind of lay the, <laughs> lay the groundwork uh, for what we're talking about here uh, for people that might not understand. I want to address mutations one more time and because the word mutation uh, is often seen as uh, kind of a negative thing. Maybe with the, uh, uh, the X-Men and Marvel comics, it's seen as a positive thing. Who knows? Um, but anyway, in the, in the past, it's always seen as kind of a negative deal. But can you address uh, first, mutations and that they aren't necessarily bad. Um, but then also, I'm very interested in how we know the regularity of the mutation rate and what you know what actually causes a mutation. How do we know that that's so regular that we can use it as a clock? And, and what's causing that regularity? Right. Well, um, that's a very interesting question. So empirically, in terms of actually real data, if you, we can actually see how many mutations occur in each person. Because we have lots of, in, with modern medical genetic studies, we have lots of cases where we have both parents and the kid, and we've sequenced their genomes very carefully of both parents and the kid, and we can count all the new DNA letters that are present in the kid that are not in the parents. And it seems, and per genome, there's about 30 new DNA letters that get, that occur in each kid compared to the parents. Um, and that number varies very, very little from person to person. To person. It's just like a, it, it's no more than you. It, it's, it's about what you expect if everybody has the same probability of, of a mutation at every position in the genome, or the same probability of mutation. So there don't seem to be 
people who are hypermutators or people who mutate very little, it seems to be a pretty constant rate um, from person to person and not variable from person to person, which is surprising. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that we know quite a lot about what positions in the genome are more or less likely to mutate from generation to generation. And so um, there are different rates associated with different DNA letter letters are more or less likely to mutate. But it's about a bit like radioactive decay. You know, when you have a piece of radium it, right. and you, you have a Geiger counter that you hold next to the piece of radium, it's clicking, 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 clicking. And you have gazillions of atoms in that radium. They have a, each of them has a very slow probability of, of fissioning um, in any second. But if you have gazillions and gazillions, they actually emit enough fissioned uh, alpha particles or beta particles or whatever they are, gamma particles, that they're picked up in your Geiger counter. And that's what's happening with the mutation process. It's a random process, whether any one DNA letter changes. Uh, it's very unlikely to change in any one generation. But if you sequence over the whole genome, there's enough genome to work with that it's a pretty regular rate, this average process. So that's how we, we use DNA as a clock. Mutations mostly occur in junk DNA. The great majority of our DNA, you know, some people say as much as 98% of it, or some people say less of it, um, uh, or, or more of it, uh, d- less of mm-hmm. it does nothing. Um, and so um, most mutations are neutral. They don't have much of a positive or a negative effect. And it's mostly these neutral mutations that we're using to provide information about history. So with these mutations, it sounds like they're kind of constantly occurring at low levels, um, one of the things that comes out in your book and in some of our other podcasts is just the huge range of human ancestors that are present. How does this mutation process feed into sort of the, the branching and development of some of these, you know, the sort of the development of our current um, human species, but also these side branches? Yeah. Well, the mutation process is not affecting our branching pattern. We would have ancestors whether the mutations happen or not. It's just the mutations allow us to see those ancestors. So, for example, groups of people who share a mutation must descend from a common ancestor because the mutation, in most cases, can only have occurred once. And so by observing a mutation that occurred in the common ancestor of a group of people, that's a tracer die that allows you to say that those people are related. So, for example, there's particular mutations that are only present, as far as we can tell, in certain Native American groups or the Native Americans as a whole. And that's a tracer die for a common ancestral thread in the common ancestry of a great large number of Native Americans that hasn't contributed much, if anything, to non-Native American populations. So that's how you can actually figure out and use DNA to help begin to differentiate groups and people from each other um, and learn about history and migrations and and and, and movements. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. So basically, we don't have to worry about mutations turning us into a new species, or uh, but we can use them to kind of understand where we are coming from and who we are related to and how that relationship is structured. That's how I'm using it. And so one of the points I make in my book um, is that Chapter one is something called something like, you know, how the genome tells us who we are. And I think most people, most journalists, for example, who write about DNA, and, you know, their first question is something like, you know, I went to a company to get my genome sequenced, and I asked, you know, <laughs> you know am I susceptible to heart disease or Alzheimer's disease? And they're trying to get some answers to who they are. And the fact is, is that the genome, we can hardly read off very much about our biology. You know, we might be able to like say we're at a 30% higher risk for heart disease, but you know, everybody's at high risk for heart disease. Is it going to change your life if you're one in three chance of getting it or one in 2.5 chance of getting it? I don't know. You know, you know, so maybe there might be some informative things. And so a lot of people leave feeling slightly disappointed about the clarity of information you get about biology. If we sequence the DNA, we get a blood sample of someone from a crime scene and try to reconstruct you know, a police drawing of them, we can't do anything like that. We can't show how people looked from their DNA sample. We can't predict at what age you're going to die or get sick. Um, it's very poor information. If we can't do it on people today, how much less can we do it in people in the deep past? And so in a lot of ways, we, we barely, we don't know what distinguishes humans from chimpanzees, basically. You know, it's, it's, it must be there in the genome, but like there's a... You know, there's 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 th- 
30 million candidate positions that contribute to it, and we just can't figure out which does which. But the way that the genome has really told us who we are is by reconstructing in exquisite detail and promise forever more exquisite detail how we're related to each other, um, the migrations and, in fact, profound population mixtures that made us. And so what I do in my first chapter is I say, if you came trying to figure out what makes humans distinctive from Neanderthals, modern humans distinctive from Neanderthals, or modern or humans distinctive from chimpanzees, you will be disappointed by the current state of research. And that is not what you're going to get from this book. What this book is going to tell you, though, is it's going to provide you with a profoundly different picture of how people are related to each other than almost anybody had before the last few years. Okay. Well, I have some more questions on mutations because it's kind of the crux of this whole entire thing here. Uh, But before we do that, let's take our first break and we'll come back on the other side and continue this conversation about the book, Who We Are and How We Got Here with David Reich. Back in a minute. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, (laughs) we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Are you interested in hosting your own show on the Archaeology Podcast Network? If you're passionate about a topic and can come up with at least 10 episodes right now, I'll wait. Then contact me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We'll go over your options and what we can do for you. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't let your passions sit in a file cabinet or on a dusty bookshelf. Broadcast them to the world with a podcast today. Back to the show. All right. Welcome back to episode 42 of the Archaeology Podcast. And we are talking about the book, Who We Are and How We Got Here with David Reich. And David, when we left, we were talking about mutations. And I just want uh, before we go backwards in time, I want to kind of talk about the present and go forwards in time a little bit because I'm really interested in this idea of mutations and that, you know, as you said, a lot of the mutations happen in the, in the quote, junk DNA realm of our, of our genome. Um, but as we know, I mean, we are a different species. We're evolved from a long line of different species going back to, you know, uh, uh, an ancestor, you know, uh, way back in the past without really getting into that. Um, but we're, we're an evolved species ourselves. So it stands to reason that we are probably currently evolving at some point or another. And as those mutations happen, they must happen in some pretty critical areas that I don't know, maybe we even see as deformities or defective, uh, parts of our human, uh, condition right now, but later on might be part of the normal operating procedure of how we go. So I guess my question is if mutations are regular and they happen all the time, with the sheer number of humans we have, I mean, more more primates than has ever existed in, uh, you know, in history and in one species. Um, are we evolving possibly at a higher rate than we would, say, 100,000 years ago? Or, you know, could, could we expect to see some changes in our evolutionary future um, at a quicker rate? I don't know if I'm phrasing that right. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do exactly understand what you're saying. So what you're talking about is something that a number of people have written about, um, which is that 
um, because the number of new mutations, the, the number of targets for mutations in every generation is about 3 billion, the size of our genome, um, and we hit 30 of them every generation in any person. So that's about 100 millionth of the genome is hit in every generation. And because there's 6 or 7 billion people in the world, that means that everybody, uh, it means that every position in the genome is getting hit 50 or 60 times every generation. <laughs> right. So every, essentially, more or less, every possible single letter mutation that can occur does occur many times in every generation. So that might not have been the case when our ancestors had only tens of thousands of individuals, in which case not every mutation that could occur was occurring. And what that meant at that time was that maybe you know there might have been an advantageous mutation that occur- could have occurred, but it just wasn't occurring. And so the population was what people call in a mutation-limited state. You know, In principle, some mutation, brilliant mutation could have occurred, it just wasn't occurring by chance because the population wasn't large enough to have an individual who it could occur in. But now we have such a huge population that all advantageous mutations more or less are occurring. That's an oversimplification, but that's the idea. And the idea is that that advantageous mutation might be so great for us that that person would have an especially large number of kids and mutation would occur and selection, natural selection would occur more rapidly and efficiently. And maybe that's happened since the agricultural revolution in the last 10,000 years. Now, there's no compelling at all, evidence at all that that's happened. Um, And in fact, most natural selection does not seem to be on new mutations as far as we can tell over the last 50 or even 10,000 years, but rather on pre-existing mutations. So I think there's no evidence for that idea. It's an interesting idea. In fruit flies, it does matter. Um, And where there there are booms and busts of populations going in and out of mutation-limited states. But in humans, I think there's no clear evidence that that's happened. That makes total sense. I'm glad you said it that way, because I I feel like some people think when they have this tangential sort of understanding of natural selection, they think, oh, all of a sudden somebody was born that could, you know, walk upright and shoot a bow and arrow, (laughs) but it doesn't really work that way. You know, it has to be gone through the population and and developed as like, you know, this new mutation has to be almost developed as a skill before it's seen as an advantageous thing. And then, you know, maybe propagates through the species, I guess. But yeah. And I mean, the behavior you're talking about or the capabilities, I mean, it's impossible sure. to imagine that that was a single mutation. And right. you know, once you're having a combination of rare mutations that, you know, those are not going to be, be occurring by chance. You know, they, they have to, <laughs> you know, just you know, the 50 mutations that are necessary to make someone shoot shoot and bow an arrow better than a chimpanzee would be capable of are not going to happen altogether in one person, even with our large population size. So, right. um, so, so, yeah. I mean, I think that this is relevant, though, because one of the way I lead off the book, also in this chapter called um, "How the Genome Came to Explain Who," how you know how the genome explains who we are, is I start with an oversimplification that was made in the 1980s by Richard Klein for. Uh, anthropologists, um, this idea of the genetic switch. The observation from archaeology was that uh, beginning around 50,000 years ago to 70,000 years ago, there's evidence of a enriching uh, rich, a richness, an increasing richness of uh, material culture in, in ancient human archaeological sites with an increased use of symbolic behavior, use of art and sculpture and Beads much more than had been before. It's it's now clear that all of those elements were present before, but much more certainly. And the argument was that what you're seeing here is the development of some kind of biological capability that drove this innovation. That this was not just a cultural development and the emergence of new learning, but actually new biological capability. And I think that this was emerging out of kind of a kind of euphoria about the power of biology. I mean, a couple of decades before DNA had been discovered and was an incredibly simple explanation for incredibly complex things. You know, these four DNA letters, they spell out the genes, they make the proteins, you know, they seem to solve all these puzzles and they did solve all this. It did solve all these puzzles. And the hope was that genetics might not just um, spell out our code of life and not be only useful for actually revealing where our ancestors went, but might actually explain how our ancestors, the big changes happened. And so there was this idea that maybe there was some magical change, maybe some mutation that allows conceptual language or a certain kind of higher cognitive thinking that happened around this time and swept through the population, perhaps some change in the brain that made all of this possible. And that resulted in this quickening that made modern humans distinctive and distinctly like us at that time. And 
what I describe in the chapter is how that optimism has completely fallen through. There's several ways that that's so. One is that we that would argue that everybody should share a common ancestor at some point in the genome containing the genetic switch within the last 100,000 years at most. But in mm-hmm. fact, there's no place in the genome where all people today share the common ancestor within the last 400,000 years, which is well beyond this change. And so there cannot be no magic bullet, silver explanation, simple explanations. The other is that this quickening happened at a time that is well after the diversification of the ancestors that gave rise to modern human populations. So if you look at the Khoisan of Southern Africa and the Yoruba of West Africa, those two groups have been separated from each other almost completely in terms of their ancestry for 200,000 years or so, which is well before these developments. And so you have to be arguing that these developments that allow symbolic behaviors are happening much more in the ancestors of one of these groups than the other, if they're biological. But yet both of these groups and all other groups of humans in the world today are fully capable of all rich aspects of of, of modern human culture, creativity, and everything else. And so, so everything, it's much more complicated. And you know, if genetics did have a role in allowing modern human behavior, I think it's now increasingly clear from genetic studies, as well as, of course, all the much richer studies in, 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 in anthropology and archaeology and, 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 and cognitive science and so on, that it would have been responsive to, envir- to cultural change. So maybe changes in culture, perhaps the development of new language that allows teaching and so on would have made it advantageous to have certain biological adaptations, which would in turn have made it possible to have certain future cultural developments. But in this case, it's not genetics and biology driving, it's biology supporting changes that are initially being started by culture. I think there's very little evidence that it's biological creativity that's making possible these changes uh, at this very rapid timescale in human history. Yeah, that makes total sense to me uh, that you wouldn't see that switch that caused a match of a massive cultural shift in 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 our humanity uh, in every human. That makes sense to me because uh, I use the example of like Einstein. You know, he had something genetically in his brain that allowed him to understand spatial dimensions better than somebody else, and and you know, math and all the things that required to do that. And we've all benefited from that, but that doesn't mean we all understand it or share that genetic change. You know what I mean? Or sure. you know, something like that. So sure, it, it sure, could have sure. been just you know, it could have been just a handful of people that had that switch, but their cultural transmission of knowledge helped that to spread throughout the world because even if you didn't have the capability to understand what this person is telling you, you can see the knock-on benefits of it and are going to do it yourself. So, you know, it's like teaching a chimpanzee sign language. It doesn't mean they all know sign language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book, and I, and I like this as well, so not only, it's not only about understanding um, where we came from, but also really kind of finding out about uh, previously unknown populations. You mentioned the ancient North uh, Eurasians. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that's how ancient DNA has helped us our, our understanding of them? Yeah. So this is a um, the kind of classic type example of the ghost population. So one of the things we find from genetic data when you're analyzing genetic data, even of modern populations, is that what you have evidence of is that there existed a population in the past that no longer exists in unmixed form anywhere today, but that contributed DNA to many people living today. And we found this when we were studying Europeans. Uh, in 2012, we were studying French people, and we found that in French people today, the frequencies of these DNA letter mutations tend to be intermediate between Southern Europeans, like Sardinians from the island of Sardinia, and Native Americans. Um, and that was a really crazy, strange finding. And we were able to show that this must reflect profound and large-scale mixture in the ancestors of Europeans between groups uh, related, on the one hand, uh, deeply to Sardinians, and on the other hand, deeply to Native Americans. And what we proposed is that there was a population that lived sometime before 15,000 years ago in northern Eurasia and crossed and contributed to the population that con- crossed the Bering Land Bridge and peopled the Americas, and that members of that same population at some point also moved into Europe. That's what we predicted based on DNA today, but it was a ghost population, one we didn't have DNA from at that time. Um, But then a year and a half later, S.K. Willerslev's group working in Denmark 
found that predicted ghost population. So they were sequencing DNA from a 24,000-year-old little boy uh, from the Malta site near Lake Baikal in Siberia, and he perfectly matched this prediction and was actually Mm. clearly a much better genetic source for Europeans and for Native Americans um, than what we already had before then. This boy was from that ghost population. And with this ghost population in hand, all the other puzzle pieces fell into place, and we were able to predict further ghost populations and resolve previously unresolved ambiguities um, relating um, the ancestors of Native Americans and the ancestors of Europeans and now the ancestors of South Asians. So with these ghost populations, I mean, it almost sounds like the genetics is starting or has the potential to lead archaeology a little bit. Um, And do you see, as new ghost populations are identified in the genomes, do you see archaeologists going out and trying to identify and find some of these ghost populations? Yes, I think so. So here are two examples. Example one are the Denisovans. So the Denisovans are a group that was simply not known about before the genetics. I got involved in ancient DNA working with Svante Pabo in the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, who invented much of the technology for uh, DNA studies. And he started out working on Neanderthals. And it was obvious that Neanderthals were super interesting archaic humans to get DNA from. There was incredible archaeology, incredible description of their fossils and skeletons. And Svante and his colleagues did get DNA out of the uh, Neanderthals, and we found that they interbred with the ancestors of non-Africans, really interesting result published in 2010. But that was a case where we had a fossil, we had skeletons, and they were in search of a genome because we knew that having genetic data would be interesting. And they could resolve a question that was already well posed, was there interbreeding between the ancestors of non-Africans and Neanderthals? And the answer was yes, and actually different from how a lot of us thought. But in the same year that we published that paper, Svante and his colleagues got DNA from a finger bone found in a cave in southern Siberia that was labeled as a modern human, but that when they sequenced the genome, they found it was neither a modern human nor a Neanderthal. It was something else entirely. Um, and there were no fossils to correspond to it. All we had was this finger bone, not detached from other skeletal elements and a big tooth that was from the same group, and that's it. And we still don't know what types of skeletons they were associated with. So here was the opposite. Instead of a fossil in search of a genome, a genome in search of a fossil. And it's been propelled a lot of research of archaeologists and anthropologists to figure out what groups of humans corresponded to these Denisovans. They were distant cousin of Neanderthals who have big brains just like us. So it's very likely they had brains just as big as us um, and were roaming around central and eastern and southern Eurasia. And we know they were in southern Eurasia because they interbred with the ancestors of some humans living today, just like Neanderthals did. And so this is really exciting observation to find a new population entirely from genetics. Example one, that was example one. Example two um, is um, is uh, how uh, genetics is um, overthrowing uh, views in archaeology about how change happens. In Europe, um, the uh, primary view was that after farming arrived, there were not very substantial changes in the ancestry of Europeans after about eight or 9,000 years ago when farming spreads in from the Near East. Um, because once people were densely settled farmers, it would have been very difficult for there to be additional movements from outside to major, make a major impact. But we and others showed in uh, 2015 that there was actually, in fact, a mass migration from the Russian steppe after 5,000 years ago that re- achieved a minimum 70% replacement of the German population and a minimum of 90% replacement of the British population within a very short period of time. And today is the dominant ancestry type in much of Europe. Okay, well, with that, we are going to take our final break. And then on the other side of this break, we will wrap up this discussion with David Reich uh, regarding his new book, Who We Are and How We Got Here. Back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show.
tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 42. And we are wrapping up our discussion with David Reich on his new book, Who We Are and How We Got Here. And David, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, you know, Back in the 1800s, 1700s, and even now today, people started talking about white people and Caucasians being, you know, some sort of a a pure race and all that kind of stuff. And people still talk about that today. How has ancient DNA helped shed light on where we actually came from, where races come from, how that kind of thing, you know, develops and how, how really, quite frankly, how complicated it is and not simple like people probably think? Right. Well, the first thing to start, that's an important question. The first thing to realize is that race is not a scientific term. It's a social category. Um, and uh, who falls within different racial categories uh, changes um, depending on what country you're in. Uh, for example, in Brazil, people um, are defined as black only if they have entirely Afri- African ancestry. And in the United States, they're defined as, people are defined as black often if they're only a little African ancestry. And it changes over time, for example, across U.S. census categories. And often it doesn't correspond to any gen- genetically meaningful category at all, like the, the term Latino includes both Argentinians who have almost no, who are almost entirely European in ancestry and Puerto Ricans who are mostly African in ancestry and uh, and Mexicans who are for the most part about half Native American and half European in ancestry. And so, so, so race is not a, 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 a genetic category. It's a, it's a socially constructed category. And we've, anthropologists have established this over a long period of time. But there are population differences that exist amongst humans that reflect longstanding population separations and do reflect regions of relative uh, – and there are regions of relative genetic homogeneity in the world. One such region is Western Eurasia, where from the Atlantic shores of Europe all the way to Central Asia and Iran, people are genetically rather similar to each other with very small frequency differences in terms of these mutations across populations. And the thought was that this is reflects an ancient – group uh, that has been isolated from East Asians and various Sub-Saharan African groups and South Asians for a very long period of time. Um, And in fact, what we've learned from ancient DNA is, in fact, while this group is indeed has a relatively high degree of homogeneity today, that's actually just a recent phenomenon. 10,000 years ago, when we look at ancient DNA from Western Eurasia, we we find that there were four groups in the region each is different from each other as Europeans and East Asians are today. And so if you were to go back in time to Western Eurasia just 10,000 years ago, you would find, you and you were to classify people into groups based on ancestry, you wouldn't look at all like a region of homogeneity, but great subdivision. And what happened is that none of those groups disappeared. They all became ghost populations. They all mixed with each other to produce a region of large homogeneity today. And we understand that process in great detail in Europe and in uh, the Near East now through ancient DNA. And so the idea of whites as a category of people, which is age-old and in some sense pure, is in fact falsified by ancient DNA, which shows that, in fact, whites are profoundly mixed. And this is not an issue specific to white people. It's also true of South Asians who are profound mixtures of groups as different from each other as Europeans and East Asians between two to 4,000 years ago, and at deeper time depths, additional mixtures of East Asians, of Native Americans, of many different sub-Saharan African groups. The biggest theme of my book 
is the discovery that we are all mixed. We are all mixed without exceptions. And in fact, people who live in any one place today are almost never descended without mixture from people who lived in the same place a very long time ago. I think that's one of the most amazing things about uh, genetics in general is understanding this this link that we all have to each other. And I think if once you understand that, you, you start looking at people on the street differently. You know what I mean? It's. Uh, I, I, I yeah. think so. I think that <laughs> genetics teaches us about relatedness and about mixture, and it teaches us that immigration is is central to our own identities. What implication it has for today and how we see the world around us, I don't know. But it does tell us that denial of mixture and denial of immigration and denial of migration and denial of movement is flying in the face of of, of the ha- of the history and what made us who we are today. Okay, well, as we're getting close to the end of this episode, um, I want to make sure, I mean, there's so many other questions we can ask you about this, but um, may- maybe we could talk about doing a uh, an ancient genetics um, podcast, your own show later on. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I want to know, you know, moving forward with this, what are some of the really big questions in this field that you guys are currently attempting to answer or would like to address at some point in the future? Oh, there are so many. So I think for me, um, one of the features of ancient DNA studies so far has then been that it's been very uneven across the world and across time. So there's been an undue focus on Europe, which is, of course, an important place, but just a small corner of the world. Um, And we really need to broaden out ancient DNA studies to all of the rest of the place where humans have lived around the world. Um, if it's been so revolutionary in the study of European populations and now beginning in the studies of Pacific populations and uh, Central Asian and Near Eastern, it can be tra- similarly transformative everywhere where this technology is deployed. The experience with ancient DNA is that every time this technology is used to look into this DNA of peoples who are no longer exist in the past, it's been new and surprising and has challenged previous views. So this is clearly a very productive type of research. Mm-hmm. Another area that's really exciting to uh, think about is um, the ability of DNA to reconstruct social change. So with ancient DNA, we can see that some of the mixtures that we find occurring are sex-biased processed. For example, People in Vanuatu, which is an island chain uh, in the Pacific, um, one of the first stepping stones of uh, humans as they spread into the Pacific beginning around 3,000 years ago, what we find is that most of the, uh, it's a mixed population of uh, Taiwanese origin, Aboriginal Taiwanese related origin, and Papuan New Guinea related origin. And most of the male ancestry comes from New Guinea, and most of the female ancestry comes from Taiwan. So how did that happen? It must reflect some kind of social differences between those groups when they came together. And so that's really informative about the changes that occurred. And so I think that understanding social change through the lens of DNA is very powerful. Another area is population size reconstruction. We are very bad at learning about what the population sizes of ancient groups are, and it's all very fuzzy. What kind of carrying capacity did land support? Were there 100,000 or a million or 10 million or 100 million Native Americans in 1492. We just don't know. Um, And the estimates wildly vary. But with DNA, we could figure this out. And the way we could figure this out is obtaining DNA from large numbers of Native Americans pre-contact and seeing what is their level of relatedness to, you know, what is the density of third cousins or sixth cousins or 10th cousins that tells you how closely related on average people are to each other. And it tells you how big the population size is. And that could help solve a question that it's been hard with the traditional tools of archaeology um, and uh, to answer, but could be very informative about the questions that we're interested in. So these are the sorts of types of information that genetics can provide. It can tell you um, before it was unclear whether there was movement of people and spreads of genes and mixtures of people between groups, uh, ancient sites. And that was a really important question to understand you know, if you see material culture change in the archaeological record, to what extent does migration and movement contribute to it? Simply not answerable before. But DNA is a tool that allows archaeologists to resolve that question. And with that question resolved, archaeologists can go on to asking and answering some of the questions that archaeologists have been most interested in asking and answering, which is how did those changes occur? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, back to something you just said, if uh, if how closely people are related to each other, like how many cousins apart are they from each other? If that's such an important um, question, 
or important component to answering the question of maybe how big was a population. How much does uh, how much does inbreeding affect that um, estimate? Since we don't really know culturally when people were doing that, aside from like the British royal line who wrote down everything, so we know how much inbreeding they were doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, is inbreeding more of a an outlier, uh, and it's not really part? It doesn't really affect your equation at all. Or um, is it just something we just assume is an outlier when we're trying to look at these older populations? So inbreeding refers to people um, intermarrying or having a child with their close relative right. or a relative. Um, and, um, you know, the British royal line does it and the plant rice does it. I mean, it's a large fraction of the matings are with close relatives. Um, and um, that does not mean that diversity is being lost in a deep way in the population. It just means that a substantial fraction of matings are with close relatives. And that's easy to t- detect because what you see is you see bits of the genome that you get from your mother and father are identical to each other due to shared ancestry. So the trick to distinguishing between inbreeding and a small population or a large population size is to compare different individuals to each other random individuals from the population and see how closely related those are. So you don't compare the mother and father of the same individual, the two genomes a person has. You always compare across individuals. And then in breeding, it can be circumvented as a confounder in this type of thinking. Okay. You can also, of course, learn about the Inbreeding. I mean, inbreeding is very interesting, and it varies in different parts of the world anthropologically today. So for example, in urban Pakistan, if I understand, if the last time I saw it, a statistic on this, 40% of marriages were inbred marriages between first cousins or something like that. And in northern India, that almost never happens because there's strong exogamy rules. So you have very extreme variation reflect, reflected in culture, and you could see that in DNA. One of the things that as you're talking about this, the kind of the ability to see how closely related different populations are to each other or how related people are within a single population, you know, I just keep thinking about some of the ethical issues related to this genomic research where in a way you have the power to redefine identities for people um, because you can sort of change and challenge these cultural narratives of who a group is and how a group is related to other groups of the world around them. Um, Is this something that people are thinking about as they're doing genome research and kind of as we move forward with this line of research? I think so. I think we are all thinking about that. I mean, I think this is a a challenge shared by archaeology and any scholarly investigation, which is scientific investigation of the past uh, challenges traditional narratives of the past, uh, because what's found may not conform to what the stories that groups tell about themselves or that's in the books or and so on. And so I think we have to be cognizant of that when we do this research, that the findings that we obtain about how people are related may not match up to the stories that people tell about themselves. And when we sample skeletons from ancient sites um, that are in lands that are occupied by people, we need to be cognizant of that, that what, of what we're doing. And, and I certainly try to do that when I do my work, uh, but it's an issue that we have to keep in mind. Okay. Well, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to address something, um, you know, it's a little bit outside of your book, but might help for future research. You know, April and I are both archaeologists. Um, I work here in the American um, West, typically in Nevada and California. Don't see a ton of human remains when we're out doing um, work in, in Nevada, just because of preservation is not very good. Um, but that being said, I have worked on projects where human remains were found. And uh, if any other archaeologists are listening to this, can you think of any I guess, collection practices that people should watch out for that would help preserve the DNA in the in the samples that they are collecting. Things they shouldn't do or maybe things they should do that can that can help with that. You hear a lot of things going out around different people like, oh, you shouldn't put it, uh, you know, human remains in a in a paper bag like we use artifact bags or in a plastic bag that'll affect it. Things like that. Are you aware of anything on the field side that, that we could maybe give us a, an instructional message to archaeologists? Well, if you're collecting bone that might be collected for DNA, the first thing to do is not to do the lick test on it and to spit on it <laughs> um, or to wash the bone. That's a tall um, order. Keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it dirty um, with mud and, and dirt on it um, mm-hmm. because we don't want the contamination from the archaeologists or mixing from sites of contamination on the surface into the bone that can happen with that initial handling. Put it in a clean plastic bag. Plastic's fine, um, even if it's wet. Um, and uh, get it into a fridge or an ice box as soon as you can, um, and keep it in a fridge. Um, 
and uh, wear uh, plastic gloves if you have them available um, uh, while you're handling the specimen. So those are the things to do. I don't think you have to wear a spacesuit when you're doing your dig. Um, uh, but I think that trying it when you're, when you're sampling a bone from DNA, try to wear gloves. Try not to cough or breathe too strongly on the sample. Uh, don't wash it. Uh, put it in a plastic bag and put it into a cooler and then get it to a refrigerator. Okay. So I think that that's, that's some advice. Um, and, um, and, and I think there's an increasing number of people to uh, interact with and collaborate with uh, on ancient DNA studies. And you know, we geneticists are very aware that what's happening with DNA is perhaps analogous to what happened 60, 70 years ago with the radiocarbon revolution, where there was this kind of techie new technology that was making possible really powerful new inferences about the past. Um, initially, that was just the province of the specialists. But I think we're very aware that one of our goals is to midwife this field into one that's accessible to archaeologists, you know, at the hands of the service of archaeologists. So the future is going to be one where there are ancient DNA service laboratories where you can send out your sample for ancient DNA analysis and can get back some kind of standardized report, which will tell you information on the sex, the um, relatedness to other samples for which there's uh, data that you submitted or data in the database that existed um, and broad genetic affinities of the sample. And I think that that's something that um, is, is in the future. And I think archaeologists, I hope, will be excited about. My experience with archaeologists is that as a community, archaeologists are deeply interested in revealing the past and getting information about periods of time that there's often little information for. And this is an incredibly powerful, almost unhoped for new seam of information about the past. It's a real miracle that DNA is a stable molecule and has such incredibly rich information and that it persists for tens or hundreds of thousands of years in some cases and is now available to us. Okay, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think most archaeologists would be uh, thrilled to get such uh, detailed information out of uh, a specimen or a sample. Uh, the only thing we have to caution ourselves against, of course, is the cultural ramifications where we're working because, you know, the example of Kennewick Man, like a very famous example of, you know, um, interactions with Native Americans and cultural groups and things like that and having samples done and sent out and, you know, all those sorts of things. So, sure. um, you know, we got to be careful with that. But otherwise... Those are super important considerations. Absolutely. Um, I, I think my final question is, if somebody wants to get into um, not just genetics, but really kind of studying ancient DNA and ancient genetics, what kind of educational path would you suggest for them? Sure. Well, there's a few paths that can take you into that realm. Um, if you are interested in math and computers, that's one path. Um, and that's a really powerful path because it will empower you to be able to think critically about this data. Um, and so if I were an someone interested in archaeology and also good at math and I was an undergraduate, I would double major in computer science and in archaeology um, <clears throat> and um, try to combine those in order to learn about ancient DNA. And that's much more important than biology. Um, another thing that I would do is I would try to uh, get into an ancient DNA laboratory. Um, either uh, one, Another thing that I would do is try to get involved in connecting you know, these techie mathematicians and computer scientists who are analyzing the data with anthropologists and archaeologists. We speak different languages, geneticists and archaeologists. We're trying to learn how to speak the same language. I think we recognize the value of each other's knowledge, but we speak different languages. We don't have the same training. And I think there's a deep need for archaeologists to reach out to geneticists and geneticists to reach out to archaeologists to develop a common language um, in order to be able to speak about the findings of this field and their relevance to archaeology. Indeed, very well said. You know, I've, I've always uh, been one to try to put different different disciplines together and try to do that. I try to do that with technology and archaeology, uh, you know, kind of bring that realm into archaeology because we, we kind of see it as different languages, and I totally agree. Understanding those uh, those similar things that can help you out. You can help each other out understanding that other side. And this book, I think, would be a, go, a, a great distance to helping people understand the value in really understanding DNA and ancient DNA and what it can tell us. So um, thank you, David. And uh, I hope that um, somebody can convince you to, to keep writing about this in a way that is accessible to the public. <laughs> and we can, thank you. Yeah. And thank we can you. get more great books out of this. So um, thank you. yeah. Thanks a lot. April, anything else? No, this was great. I, it was a wonderful read. The book was great, and it was great talking to you today and getting a little bit more detail. Thank you. Thank you for talking with me. 
All right. Well, thank you, uh, David and April. And again, check the show notes for uh, links to the book and some other things that we talked about. I'll put some other links in there as well to some of the concepts we discussed. Um, as I as I edit this show, I'll pull those out and drop those in the show notes. So check that out at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 42. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.